You were listening to episode 25 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with James Goldman. 30 years ago, instead of putting up a billboard on the top of their building, he thought it'd be a great idea to commission a giant replica of a termite in Rhode Island off of I-95, the main highway. I think it's like 90 foot long, giant replica of a termite. It's painted blue, called the Big Blue Bug. In fact, a couple of years ago, they changed the company name to Big Blue Bug Solutions because it's become such an icon. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I bring on people doing interesting things in the world, whether that's being an entrepreneur, an engineer, or just living an unconventional life. We bring them on to learn more about them and learn more about how they did what they're doing. Lewis, who do we have on the show today? Hey Kyle, this episode is with James Goldman from PaintZen. He tells us the whole story of the company from how the team first met and the startup they started on before PaintZen to what eventually became PaintZen and how they took that company from just an idea with three employees to eventually selling it for $75 million only a few years later and how he actually still works there as an aqua hire staying in the CTO role. We go over both the business development, the technical development, and his personal development, really, over that whole journey from starting the company to selling it and continuing to work there. It's a really, really interesting interview about his whole story, and I think you all will really enjoy it. So with that, we're going to cut to it. James, thank you for coming on the show. Glad to be here. We're excited to have you. Before we, before we really dive in, can you give us just some quick personal background, like where you're from, maybe some hobbies that you did when you were growing up? Yeah, so I'm from Rhode Island originally. Growing up, I was interested in a lot of different things, animation, cooking, probably most important and relevant, programming. I used to program, I don't know what kids are using these days, but we had a TI-83 graphing calculator, and I figured out how to code programs on that, and that was really my first experience coding. What kind of things were you making on the calculator? Were you making games or solving, doing all your homework for you, or what kind of were you doing with that? So I did two things. One, games. uh, So you could download games, and then I would like edit the source code to figure out how things work because I never learned to program. I just sort of figured it out as I went along. That and uh, SAT prep was pretty helpful on the calculator. So I loaded both the math side and the language side. You can load dictionaries. Yeah, that's how I got through high school chemistry. It was the <laughs> periodic table on the TI-84. That's an interesting start. We've had a couple of other people who kind of have that backstory of programming really early on and no one started with a calculator. So that's that's the first for us. So I like that story. Another kind of early biographical question or who are some of your role models early on in life, whether that's entrepreneurial, celebrity, sports, technology, any of those realms? Honestly, uh, my older brother influenced me a lot. He got into programming. I used to watch him program on his computer a lot. Uh, he ended up going into law, but he was really my first introduction into computers. This was back in like 1990, right as the internet was booming. Uh, In terms of more famous people, because I doubt anyone's heard of my brother, (laughs) you know, you look at the early entrepreneurs of the internet boom and you have like Steve Jobs to a certain extent, Jeff Bezos. I mean, now he's quite the controversial figure, but if you look at his early career and his sort of outlook at innovation, it's very interesting. And then you have, you know, Google, Sergey, and, you know, really just like the people that made their millions on the internet. I was like, oh, cool. I can do that. Yeah, should be easy. Slightly harder than I expected, but gave it a shot. James, you also mentioned that your father was a major role model to you in our previous conversations. Uh, can you elaborate on what he's taught you and share a story about how he's influenced you? 
Yeah. You know, my dad ran a very successful pest control business in Rhode Island growing up. And, you know, I really admired what he was able to accomplish growing it from sort of a small regional, like local Rhode Island based company to being statewide. And we lived in Rhode Island, but then they expanded to uh, Massachusetts as well. And he was just really able to grow that business. He had actually inherited it from his father. And one of the stories he mentions is, you know, his father was always trying to get into other businesses. So he would try alarm installation and cleaning and, and not really focus on optimizing pest control. And when my father took over, he really began to optimize pest control and showed that it could be a very you know profitable business. So that was just one of the things. But another big thing is it was mainly my dad's idea to 30 years ago, instead of putting up a billboard on the top of their building, he thought it'd be a great idea to commission a giant replica of a termite in Rhode Island off of I-95, the main highway. I think it's like 90 foot long giant replica of a termite. That's um, humongous. Yeah. It was, it's painted blue, called the Big Blue Bug. In fact, a couple of years ago, they changed the company name from New England Pest Control to Big Blue Bug Solutions uh, because it's become such an icon. It's been featured in movies, the TV show Family Guy. Uh, it actually won in terms of voting for the state quarter. They couldn't put it on because it's a private business, but it still won the popular vote. And so he's really been able to build a successful business and just seeing that really inspired me and helped me along my path onto entrepreneurship. The favorite lesson uh, my dad taught me, and the best example is actually when I was able to throw it back in his face, because you know that's what every teenage boy likes to do. The lesson growing up was it never hurts to ask. He would always tell me and my brothers that he would say, you know, what's the worst that they happen? Worst thing that happens? The person says no. And the best thing that can happen is you're pleasantly surprised. And you know, I really took that to heart. And one of my fondest memories was I was with my dad at a uh, minor league baseball game. And we were there early for like a season ticket holder event. It was like this mini barbecue. And I was like 11 or 12 years old. And for some reason I was like, thought, hey, maybe I could throw out the first pitch. Now this is a professional team. It's not the majors, but still throwing out the first pitch is still like a, kind of a big deal. So I asked, my dad, I asked my dad and he's like, no, like they scheduled these things week in, weeks and weeks in advance. Like it's, you know, the local newsman and whoever, business owners, then you're not going to be able to throw out the first pitch. And I went to my dad, I said, yeah, but you taught me it never hurts to ask. And he said, yeah. Jay, you're right. And so he went to his contact who was also at like the barbecue, the salesperson or whatever. And he said, hey, my son wants to throw out the first pitch. Do you already have someone or no? And the guy said, I actually don't think we do today. <laughs> he went, he talked to like someone who talked to someone. And, uh, you know, 20 minutes later at the game, I was throwing out the first pitch <laughs> as like That's a crazy. Kid off of a whim and really sort of solidified the fact that it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, I think that's such a great principle. And it's something that Kyle and I really kind of inspired this podcast in general. One thing that's going through our head recently is, you know, potentially getting an intern. We're like, you know, if I don't want to do all this editing and all this backlog content, like I'm like, it, could we have an intern? Why, why not? So like, I just went on LinkedIn and put up a posting for an intern, like $5 a day in ad spend. And we'll just see if something happens. It's just such a great principle. The worst that could happen is no one applies or and I waste 25, 30 bucks, you know? Exactly. So... I, I love that principle and I'm really glad you, you shared that with us. And I think that's something that for anyone trying to do anything meaningful or make a bigger impact, you have to have that attitude because it kind of requires being bold in certain circumstances. So and, Yeah. And people will surprise you with what they're willing to do and how they're willing to help you. Uh, absolutely. So absolutely. Just uh, asking. 
I agree with that completely. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. You, you went to Cornell, right? What did you study when you were at school? I studied uh, computer science and fine art. Funny story is they wouldn't let me take a drawing class. They only allowed full-time majors in the drawing class. And at a certain point, I was like, F it. I really want to get better at drawing and I want to enter this program. So I applied and, you know, I got in and ended up getting two degrees because of it. Were you the only comp sci fine art double major that you knew? I was not actually, surprisingly enough. There was two other people, one a year older than me, uh, one a year younger that were doing the same thing. But what do you learn in a fine art degree? So it was a pretty broad fine art degree. So drawing, sculpting, painting, uh, you did a couple semesters of each of those, some art history for sure. And then my concentration was digital imaging, which could mean digital photography. You know, we think of film being absolutely dead. And it was to a certain extent, you know, 12 years ago when I was doing it, but it was still pretty popular. Nowadays, like you can't find anyone to develop your film. Back then, digital was still this new thing. So I learned all about digital processing, some animation, and yeah, really that whole landscape. Do you think that uh, your fine art degree has helped you at all in growing in these different businesses? Immensely. More than even I thought. So I've actually used drawing techniques as metaphors for developing software. Uh, I basically gave like a 20-minute talk to my team on how we should approach software in an iterative fashion and really went deep into it and it seemed to help. There's a lot about computer science being science, but if you ask most programmers, they're like, oh, well, yeah, it's an art. Like there's a lot of trade-offs and things you need to know and it's so nuanced. And some people really do approach it more like an art form, like they're craft, they're sculpting something out of nothing. And you really can take some techniques that you learn from the art world and apply them. Can you give us an example of that? Uh, so one of my drawing teachers was very adamant about the approach to drawing, which was this. At any point in time, you should be able to walk away from a drawing and it should look complete. And what complete means doesn't mean it's perfectly rendered or every single final detail is in there. But as a whole, there's no gaps. There's no blank spots that are missing. So uh, if you're gonna draw a portrait, you start with a, a very brief sketch, right? A big circle, circles for the eyes, a little line for where the mouth is gonna be and some ears, right? And just like you're placing things on the page and it takes you about 20 seconds. And then if you stepped back and said, hey, I'm done, and showed it to another artist or someone else, they would be like, oh, I believe that you're done. Like that looks like a completed drawing, right? It, it's a sketch, but it's complete. There's no missing pieces. Mm -hmm. And then slowly you'll add more detail progressively. You'll start shading, but you won't sort of shade just one part and leave the rest unfinished. You'll really approach the entire canvas or piece of paper as a unit, such that at any point you can take a step back and, and it can feel complete. And when it comes to software, you look at agile and uh, software development, your sort of phases are your two-week sprints. After every two weeks, you should be able to walk away from your program and say, hey, it's complete. You might not have all the bells and whistles, all the fancy animations that you want it to do, but it's complete. It's a, it's a complete, what we call user experience. So there's a user that can interact with your software and they gain some sort of value from it. Right. And so you're always trying to build in a, such a way that you're not, when you're drawing, you're not off in a corner for, you know, 20 hours drawing the eye perfectly and then moving on to the nose. 
And the same sense, you're not perfecting your back end in software without starting your front end, right? You do both at the same time, iteratively, adding more detail, as it were. And I think that's a really interesting approach to any, any creative process. You know, uh, Kyle and I are working on the website for this project and we're using a lot of templates and UI kits and stuff like that. And a lot of them come with these buttons that don't lead anywhere. And it kind of leads me in these tough pages where I can't put it on the site until I have the destination for that, where that button's supposed to go. And then I have to build that page and I can't really push anything until all of that happens. It's more challenging that way. But if someone logs on while the website's in that intermediate stage, you're going to lose that person in the future because they're going to click buttons that go nowhere. And I'm also myself just going to forget because I, you know, I'm not going to write unit tests for every piece of running mostly click WordPress website. I think that's a general approach to like everything. Just being a completionist as one of our past podcast guests said is that they're obsessed with getting things done, not necessarily them being perfect or even right, but just getting it done so that the next iterative phase can happen, can come. And it's resisting the temptation to move on before you finish what you've already started. I like that a lot. I think going back to some of your digital media and some of that is what will transition into what we had talked about in the call leading up to this conversation, which is the story for how you met the team that eventually turned into VenueTap and turned into PaintZen. I think that ties also into a benefit of your art background. Yeah, so I had graduated college. I was in Rhode Island living with my parents over the summer, pretty lackadaisical about, you know, finding a job. And I was browsing Craigslist before it was super creepy with finding jobs. And there was a ad for a kick-ass designer. And so I clicked on it. It was uh, for a position in New York City. I thought, hey, you know, that's interesting way to advertise. That was the only advertising that that said, I want a kick-ass designer. I'm like, okay, I think I can be a kick-ass designer. So I took a train to New York, interviewed. That went really well. It was for a company called VenueTap, which was open table for nightlife. And the position was to take a restaurant or nightclub's uh, floor plan, which could be in like an Excel spreadsheet, a Word document, hand-drawn sometimes, to be honest, and then digitize that for the VenueTap platform. And... You know, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I said, hey, you know, I like this company. I like these people. Let me get in at the ground. And, you know, within a couple months, I was like, oh, wait, they need way more than just a designer. They need a product manager, a programmer, someone with technical expertise. And by the end of VenueTap, I became the CTO. Not a big deal because it was a team of like five people. But still, you know, I got equity in the company from starting off as a designer. And then... Myself and one of the co-founders of VenueTap, uh, Mike Russell, we became close friends and VenueTap wasn't doing great. Basically, we didn't get many bookings. And he approached me with another idea for a business, which ultimately became PaintZone, which was successful. So I have a question going back on something you just said there about how you liked the people and you liked the company. Was that an intuitive thing? You're like, I like these people. They have like the aura of success. Why did you choose to stay on that team? So I like the people. But what attracted me was actually cash flow. So the two founders were already running a nightlife business. They were former promoters that sort of ran a nightlife semi-empire, if you will, that had a good amount of revenue per year. And they were really trying to digitize you know, that business with a technology platform. But what that meant was they were cash flow positive. 
they, they were making money every week. So it was really investing the profits, but there was no need to raise money. I was like, okay, worst case scenario, we could do this for several years without venue tap taking off because there's this other business that's bringing in money. Is that what ended up happening when you were going through that hard time with venue tap? Yeah, it is. I mean, we were able to stay afloat because of that. And really the nightlife business, it's rough as you're getting older. So my partners were about five years older than me and they started having kids. Uh, and one of them was pretty much just over having to go out Friday, Saturday night is exhausting. And when you're trying to you know, start a family, you know, it wasn't what he wanted. I was having a blast as this nerdy kid who all of a sudden was you know, able to get tables and bottle service. It was pretty awesome at that time in my life. That's very cool. So let's transition now into Paint Zen and where, where that idea comes from. Because it kind of sounds like Venue Tap was an idea these guys had for club promoters first, but they wanted to digitize it. And then that didn't quite take off. But how did that transition into this new company? Me and one other person from Venue Tap started Paint Zen with a third person. So Mike was the CEO of VenueTap, and he was also a partner on a company called MyClean uh, with our third co-founder Paintson, Justin Geller. Mike and Justin started MyClean, which was one of the first on-demand cleaning companies on the internet. They started, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but there was a big company called HomeJoy that raised like hundreds of millions of dollars and then shut down because they weren't profitable. And one of the biggest issues with HomeJoy was they had independent contractors for their cleaners. And what MyClean did was employed all their cleaners, which enabled them to ensure higher quality. One of the big issues that plagued HomeJoy. So they had this cleaning company bootstrapped. It wasn't like a venture fund. They started it with money from their friends. There was about six, I think, of them. They were doing that. VenueTap was mine and Mike's main job for the most part. But the thing with MyClean was they, over the years, kept getting these requests for painter recommendations, or if MyClean would, would paint. Uh, so one of their services was like a move out clean. So they would, you know, once you move out, clean your place real well, but sometimes you need it repainted too. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, their clients would constantly ask them, hey, do you have a painter on staff? Do you know any painters? And it got to a point where Mike and Justin were like, we don't, but maybe we should. And rather than bootstrap sort of this other, you know, they could have made it part of my clean. They were like, let's make this a venture. We think it could be big. The market's big enough. It's, you know, $30 billion for paint and paint services in the U.S. Let's try to make this a pure technology play. And so they approached me. I'd been working with Mike and they said, hey, we think there's a big market here. What can we throw together? So in about a week, I threw together a three-page website. It had a simple quoting widget with four variables large rooms, small rooms, trim, and ceiling, a contact form on the next page, and a thank you page. And that was it. There's no database. There's no real backend system to log into, no administrator. Uh, when you filled out a form, it just shot off an email to uh, our team. And I put that up in about a week, started driving AdWords to it. And in the first month, we got more online bookings from that than we did for an entire year with VenueTap. So kind of knew we were onto something. <laughs> On-demand painting, right? That's basically what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say almost on-demand. It's mm -hmm. similar to an Uber model, but more like scheduled. Okay. On-demand is a little bit of a misnomer. Like you want to say like, I need a painter now. More so like 
I need a painter in a few days or, or weeks, and then you can get an instant price and book mm-hmm. on them. How does Paints in Today differ from the initial vision that you guys saw when like my clean was having all these requests for painting and, and you put up this original website? Like, how did it morph over the years? Two major ways. One is how we go about quoting things. So quoting technology became extremely sophisticated. Rather than four variables, we have thousands of variables that we take into account as we price jobs, going after you know different open data sets as well as data we've collected ourselves. And so just getting smarter about how we quote. But the other one is going after commercial services. So we started PaintSend with the idea of going after consumers houses, apartments, what's called residential repaints. But there's even bigger opportunity in the commercial space. Uh, And so recently, post the acquisition, we started an initiative we we call PPG Services, because Paint Zen was acquired by paint company PPG. And that goes after uh, large national retailers, or really any national customer or company that has greater than 10 locations. And we'll enter into contracts to repaint you know, all their locations, either for a big rollout, say there's a big acquisition, like the merging of two cell phone companies, right? So now you need to rebrand all the stores. So we've done that in the past. Or just maintenance work, right? There's water damage or wear and tear that needs to be fixed at a hotel. Uh, so we'll, we'll have those contracts. We kind of uh, jumped ahead a little bit there. It's just glazed over the whole acquisition, which is a major, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, a no ma- big deal. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, we started it at three pages and now we T-Mobile sprint, whoever it is, and we paint all their stores. So there's <laughs> definitely a little bit more to unpack there. Can you walk us through the process of how you went from, you know, your initial MVP with the four variable quote and the process of adding the features and adding cities and scaling, and then ultimately at what point your user base or your business was sophisticated to the extent that you were entering the discussions for acquisitions and that piece of the story. Yeah. So we built the technology pretty slowly. We, we had a two to three person team for the first five years of paid zone and we were able to accomplish a lot. We added a multi-city support, more sophisticated coding, a whole backend system for our sales reps. One of the biggest issues with paint zone as a company was you couldn't really apply a lot of other off-the-shelf technologies. Because our transaction was the same as our technology offering, so you wouldn't use like a sales force, have a sales rep track the sales process because booking a paint job is the sales process. So like our quoting technology is integral to the sales process. And so there's a lot of off-the-shelf technologies that we just couldn't use, so we had to end up building our own. Another big one is we would often book jobs over the phone. So we have a whole online flow and you could book online, but most people actually preferred phone calls. And so then they end up booking over the phone. And when you approach you know, Facebook or Google ads, their support for phone call based conversions, especially seven years ago, wasn't great. Uh, and so we did a lot of work at tracking so that we could actually track how you found us, we would serve a dynamic phone number to each user so that we could then, when they called us, uh, we'd have a system that would automatically connect the dots and we would know what links they clicked on in order to get to our site. You know, that was pretty sophisticated for a small team. You know, some, there are services that help you do that now, but 
it was really hard to build out that sort of aspect to our platform, but we did. So we were able to grow the consumer side. Uh, we entered 14 markets over the course of five years. We expanded to really sort of refine our offering. So offering you know, cabinets as a service. So some people would just want to repaint the cabinets in their kitchen, right? So that doesn't mean it's a regular paint job. It's a little bit nuanced. So we just had all these different offerings, services that we could provide. And, you know, we were able to refine our advertising and, and get some traction. But what it really came down to is painters for many years didn't like us. They're like, no one's going to book uh, paint jobs online. Uh, how can you not do a walkthrough? You know, this is crazy. Now, the painters that worked with us and on our platform loved it because they didn't need to do walkthroughs. They didn't need to go give estimates. All they had to do was paint. So they were thrilled. We had one painter that made three times as much money with us than they did on their own because they weren't wasting time with advertising, with walkthroughs, with project management. We did that. So all they had to do, go to a job and paint. That was an extreme example of someone who worked very efficiently, but the general trend helps. So painters were making good money through us. We were able to take a cut, Uh, not yet profitable, but we were able to make revenue. But I think it really was that painters were scared, right? Of disruption, of change. And that's why PPG came in. So, so I'm not really sure exactly how they heard of us, but they had heard of us from you know, paint storage or someone or a painter. And it got all the way up to their business dev team. And they contacted our CEO who had never heard of PPG and ignored them for several months. <laughs> but they kept you know, pinging him. And finally he responded. And then after many conversations, I'd say after we really had our first real talk with them, the acquisition took eight months before it actually closed, just going back and forth, doing due diligence. And, but it was a very interesting process. And it was, to me, the biggest surprise really in both raising money and the acquisition was how little the technology came into play. It was much more in depth of, you know, wanting to see our revenue data, our job data, our analytics, much less about seeing the actual technology. That was so interesting to me because I'm like, Hey, well, when are we going to like dive deep into all this stuff I wrote? And they're like, no, nah, it's, we're good. They're like, okay. Yeah. It's hard to explain it to a non-engineer. It's probably a bunch of, of business majors looking at it. What did it feel like when PPG reached out and you guys realized that, you know, you might get acquired. That's something that, that many entrepreneurs dream about. Did you have a moment where you were like, man, I'm about to sell a company or was it, just kind of a natural progression. It was a natural progression until the money hit my bank account. And that was exciting. To be honest, I think that's the way it should be because there's so many ways that a deal can fall through. You know, ours was close to falling through several times. There were sticking points on, you know, the terms of the acquisition or, you know, the compensation packages look like, or the details of the employment agreement or whatever. There's, so much paperwork and our lawyers and their lawyers go back and forth for months, literally. You're going to go crazy if you don't assume it's going to fail. And we just kept chugging along. You know, I'd say the CEO, uh, Mike, was very busy during the acquisition period. But for me, it was like, I got to pretend like we're not. I just got to keep building and assume we're going to go after that next series of uh, venture funding, right? What are the milestones we need to hit for that? Because if we let up for a minute, 
you know, there's a chance that the deal could have fallen through, right? If we, for some reason, weren't innovating and weren't adding features, then all of a sudden our revenues tank for a month, then they're gonna be like, oh, hey, what, what's going on here, right? And it can hold up the process. So yeah, there's a slow, long, drawn out process. You kind of always have to be pessimistic about it, but then when the money hits the bank, we, we had some fun. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer too, because it, it really isn't all roses, at least until the very last moment. What was involved in bringing additional cities on the platform? Because you're different from other companies in that you have an in-person element to it, where you have to find real people in that area to provide a real service to people in that area. It's not as simple as just a Shopify website shipping products everywhere. The first city we expanded to was by far the hardest, but we knew that we were going to have to do it multiple times. And so both from an operations standpoint and a technology standpoint, we took our time and tried to build it out the right way. So from a tech standpoint, I made it really easy for us to open up new cities. It was as easy as basically drawing a circle on a map for a new location you wanted to service. So the idea was expand our platform for not just one extra city, but as many cities as we ever wanted. And it took longer than were we to do it just for one, but it made it so that after the first one, literally the next 13 were from a tech standpoint, no. From an operation standpoint and a marketing standpoint, that's where it became tougher. Because as you said, it's an in-person service, so you have to build those relationships. But what we did from an operation standpoint is create a playbook for opening up a new city. So, you know, here's the 20 things that we need to do. And, you know, with each new city, we, we continue to refine that playbook. But really our, our vetting process is what really shined in our COO, uh, Justin Geller, created a, a program that enabled us to ensure really good painters in a new location, which to break down was sort of this. You would call paint stores, which would have some painters that they might refer business to. So we would then reach out to them, vet them, you know, talk to referrals. We had them take this test, separated out hobby painters from professional painters, make sure they had all their certifications and whatnot. But once you have one, basically we would have that one person who would do a couple jobs for us. They went well. And then we would bring on a new painter and they would have to do that with that original painter. So we'd have two crews going out for a single job. Really, you'd have that one trusted crew and then a new crew. And whenever we brought on a new painter or a new paint crew, we would have a trusted crew go to their first job. Mm. Uh, sometimes you would have unknown crew. They might not show up, but we would always have that trusted crew that we know would show up. So it saved us in a lot of scenarios, but also just to judge them. And sometimes they'd say, hey, this new crew, they're good to go. They're awesome. And sometimes they'd be like, yeesh, these guys are real sloppy. And that was a really good system for us to open up new cities, to expand our network, and really ensure uh, high quality. Wouldn't there be an incentivization for the trusted crew to say that they were bad because that is technically their competition moving forward? Or is the pie so, big enough where it's not an issue? The pie is big enough and the way we would schedule is giving preference to those trusted crews. Mm. So it would never really be the case of taking work away from a trusted crew. It'd be more like the trusted crew either can't do it or is already booked and we have more work than you know they can handle on their own. We would very slowly expand and onboard new crews for that reason. So we wouldn't say, hey, it's a free for all, 
come sign up for paint Zen. It's more like, oh, you're interested. Great. You're on a waiting list. We'll let you know when we have enough demand in your area to bring you on. Sounds like you've, and the city has done a ton of projects. So with all that information about all these projects, I'm curious to know just as a consumer, if you learned anything about like consumer preferences, if they're like certain paint colors that just had like insane satisfaction ratings, or if you learned anything about like interior design or just if from all of these projects and that scale, if you learned things that consumers like about like certain colors or certain things, the patterns or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so we've done a lot of like infographics in the past. Our biggest city <laughs> is New York. So we have like a Manhattan broken down by zip code with the favorite color of every zip code. Although the trick for that infographic was it was actually the second favorite color because the infographic for the first favorite color is all gray. You know, everyone has these really ambitious projects like, oh, I'm going to paint this like, you know, dark red, dark blue or like crazy stuff. What do people end up choosing? middle gray. Now, part of that is the natural bias of our demographic of people who want convenience, who want fast instant quote, uh, which is what we offer. And so there is some selection bias in it, but hands down, you know, when we had a Benjamin Moore sponsorship, it was, I think, Stonington gray. And I think, can't remember the PPG color, but there's just like this middle gray that everyone chooses. And, you know, there's whites and beiges as well. You know, if you look, you know, this is a video and I can see one of you has a white wall, one of you has a, actually it might be gray. It's tan. Uh, Tan. I'm working with tan in here too, it looks like. Um, This is an an Airbnb. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so like, I mean, with apartments, you get a lot of white, but with homes or whenever people are choosing colors, it's crazy how often they choose gray. And the other thing we learned was a lot of people don't want to even choose. So they would say, hey, what's the most popular paint color? <laughs> it's gray. And they're like, great, use that. Uh, <laughs> that's where that selection bias for convenience really shows up. Exactly. And, to like, and that actually led to one of our offerings, uh, which was a samples portal where you could order samples. And we created a custom color set of about 60 colors. So... All the major brands offer anywhere from you know 2,000 to 3,000 colors, which is just a lot. It's hard to navigate online on a video screen. It's hard to navigate in store even. It's hard to see the difference between tons of the pairs of colors. So we used all the data we collected to create a color palette of 60 colors. And it was uh, very popular. In fact, using the our data scientists who, who helped analyze all the colors and, and come up with what the most popular color is, I was actually able to predict the color of the year for PPG two months before their team of about 30 color experts announced <laughs> the color of the year. And we actually were on stage in an internal meeting where we was like, hey, here's this color that we think is you know the up and coming color for the year. You sort of discount the gray, right? That's always going to be the case. So it's like, what's the new thing that's going to be trending? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's this blue. Uh, Chinese porcelain blue, which was the color of the year last year, 2019, I think. And then the next person to talk was this uh, color expert. And with like 20 different uh, color experts, they traveled the world, like sort of like talking to people and analyze and trying to like figure out these trends and not through really data science, but more through like conversation and sort of artistic expression. And they're like, how did you know Chinese porcelain? 
our data said it was going to be it. It's like, how yeah. did you know it? <laughs> that's and, a that's going to be a big win as as the CTO. Yeah, that that was a big win. It kind of hurt for uh, that woman's team. Yeah, y'all are the t- team of just a few guys running this company that just got picked up. Dethroning the the team of thirty qualitative analysts. artistic analysts. So I I don't know if this question is going to hit you as directly as the CTO, but with painting and service, the service industry in general, you know, there are people going into people's houses in these different markets and you guys are like in an office in New York. How did you make sure that what you were working on actually translated into real life when these people were walking in the doors of people's homes to paint? Uh, so it had a lot to do with how we onboard painters and the types of experiences we expect to provide. It's difficult when it's not employees. Uh, so there's a certain level of freedom that you need to still allow, right? We would send painters t-shirts that were paint and branded, but they didn't have to wear them, right? Cause that's part of the rule for independent contractors. You can't dictate a uniform. Turns out Painters like free stuff and would often just wear wear the shirts we mm-hmm. sent them, um, which worked out. But really, it's you know staying attuned to customer needs and making sure we uh, remove any bad actors, but also making sure like one we do criminal background checks to make sure people aren't criminals entering people's homes. But you know, in terms of the quality of work, we have you know gave a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee, and sometimes. You know, that costs us quite a bit of money if a painter messed up. On the other hand, it has cost us a lot of money even when the painter doesn't mess up. One funny story is this person called us, you know, yelling and screaming that our painters ruined their blinds. They had $6,000 blinds. They're ruined. You know, this is Paintsons' fault. I expect you to replace my blinds. So our customer service reps are like, oh, can you send us pictures? And, you know, we did replace the blinds because, you know, customers always right. We really didn't want someone to have a negative experience, but we painted their apartment white and the blinds had red paint on them, which means it wasn't our fault at all. We didn't use that color. So, you know, you get people that abuse our niceness and our 100% satisfaction guarantee. Uh, and sometimes early, especially early on, we would always, you know, the customer's always right. But that was after that situation, our customer service had a little bit more edge to them, asking a little bit some more questions when someone wanted a refund or wanted us to come back because people will take advantage of you. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good story overall about you know the growth of the company. And I think a big takeaway there is jumping back to the founding of this company compared to VenueTap is the real, like how the market kind of existed in the first place. And y'all were able to tap into it by like meeting that need. And then just approaching it with a very principled quality driven attitude and doing that and approaching things with like an efficient perspective where you were, you know, doing things right the first time where, you know, onboarding the first city, you didn't just decide to do that roughly. You did it as a, I mean, just back to the art, the art analogy you're giving here. You didn't say like, this is, I'm just going to brute force do this city, then brute force to this city. You're like, okay, the next thing we're figuring out is adding a city. And you came up with like the framework for doing that technologically. And then it's just a copy paste from that point forward. So I think there's a lot of valuable lessons from how you did that. And then also some of those 
cooler technical stories. But the next part of the interview we want to get into is now in your life after the acquisition, like you said, you came into some money from selling this company. And I know you still work as an aqua hire, but you mentioned to us that you started angel investing. Can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy going into that and when you've gotten started and what that's been like for you? So I've done, I'd say more advising than angel investing. I've done some angel investing. For me, it's for the most part been within my network. So someone who knows someone that's able to present a good opportunity. You know, companies that have good growth potential, but more importantly, good founders. I think for me, looking at how institutional investors, you know, approach their portfolios, which is to some extent, investing in the founders and the founding team, but also in the market and, you know, different metrics that a venture firm might look for. For me, you know, it really is about the founders and their ability to execute. I've, over the past, you know, 10 years, heard lots of ideas, especially since the sale. A lot of people have approached me like, hey, I got this idea. Hey, I got this idea. Ideas really are easy to come by it's much, much harder to execute. And you'll have people with brilliant ideas that just can't get traction because they can't make the product or they spend too much time on the details, right? Like we were saying with the sort of art analogy, they're always trying to polish this one little part and they forgot about the big picture. And so for me, it really is about finding a founder with the drive and the ability to execute. So what do you look for in someone that gives you the idea that they have the ability to execute. I mean, you know, a clean pitch deck, like a good pitch, you know, people, people can give off any kind of war they want, but what do you look for in people in order to place your bets? For me, it's actually not about the pitch deck. If a pitch deck is too polished, I actually get a little turned off because mm-hmm. that means they spent too much time on it. For me, it's someone who you can have a, deep conversation about their business until you're like, you throw up your hands like, all right, you know your stuff, right? They just have an answer for everything. And it's not because they practiced. It's not because they pre-thought of, you know, the questions and like how to answer it and how to like tell a story, which are important, all things you should do. But it was because they know it inside and out. I could have picked any sort of one thing to go into detail on and they know it because they know the business, they know the market. And when someone's so invested and so knowledgeable about the space they're entering, you know, that's what excites me. When someone has an idea and usually the first thing I'll do is I'll Google their idea. And so many times, you know, someone will pitch an idea to me with their like, you know, elevator pitch, one sentence, I'll Google it. I'm like, did you hear about these 10 companies? They're like, oh no. Oh, is that what they're doing? I'm like, yeah. Now that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it right? Or they have some other way of like approaching it or whatever. But the fact that they didn't even Google their idea to see if anyone else was doing it, that just shows that they're not super invested in the space. They're not super knowledgeable. They think, you know, too often I see people who like think they have a great idea and are almost afraid to like share it. They're afraid to look at anyone else doing it because they don't want to be influenced. They don't want to like give it away. But for me, you got to share it. You got to give it away. You got to find what else is out there to see what you're up against. I have a a question here, but real quick, I want to repeat what you said about, there's a phrase you said there where you like founders that have an answer for everything and not because they practiced. I really, I really like that concept because that's just, 
a authentic kind of heuristic way for saying that someone's clearly in so deep that there's no angle you can come at them from where they're not going to just go so deep into like the literature of whatever it is that they're doing that they're going to come across as unprepared. And that leads me to this question, which is, you know, a lot of investors and mentors don't have the CTO background that you had. A lot of them say, you know, they've we're in the CEO role or the COO role, and now they have the money to start playing these other games. But because you have that super technically competent background as the person running the show technologically for five to 10 years, do you find that you get BS'd ever? Or do you think that gives you a different perspective as the investor also being like fully aware of the technologies implied in a lot of these companies? So I'd say, I want to say I, I, I get BS'd a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but I would say I get people try to play off that they have something more than they do. Okay. Uh, and, and that, I mean, that turns me off. It's pretty easy for me to assess like, Hey, Oh, we have this thing that can do X, Y, Z. Well, can it do, you know, W? Oh, I, I don't know. And I know that doesn't make sense, but in my head as a technical person, I know that X, Y, Z means W as well. Right. Okay. So I, like I can test them. And I can be like, Hey, like push them and know if it's all a facade or if it's real, if it's legit. And then also trying to use it and see what they actually have. But having a strong technology isn't always necessary. There, I had one advisee who was running their business by selling a clone of a Google Sheet. It was for career development. And she was a young woman who has this company for career development, for finding a new job. And it's just a very logical approach for uh, getting a new job. And she was like, oh, you know, I feel so bad. Like I'm trying to build this custom platform. All I have right now is this Google Sheet. I have a few customers. They paid me like 10 bucks for it. I'm like, wait, what? People gave you money for a copy of a Google Sheet. I was blown away, right? It was showed her resourcefulness and what she, she didn't hide it, right? But she, she thought it was a bad thing. And I'm like, that's amazing. That means what you have is so valuable. You can deliver it in a, such a non-ideal way that people still derive value and are willing to give you money for it. Mm-hmm. That means you're onto something. And something like that could probably be packed. If it's able for a non-technical person to encapsulate in a spreadsheet, that's something that would not be overly difficult for you to hire a developer, throw it on like a, you know, Django application or something, just a quick like web app and model all the functionality with a much better interface. Yep. Uh, so that's exactly what she did. You know, she was bootstrapping it. So it made it pretty tough. Having basically thirty dollars in sales, <laughs> but she was making it work, and uh, yeah, she's she's still going at it strong today. So you, okay. you mentioned an interest in computer vision and art. Are these personal hobbies, or are these potential areas you're looking uh, for innovation in? I mean, I wish I had time for personal hobbies, but uh, I think you know there are areas that I'm interested in, and I've as Painson has grown. I've been able to convince PPG for the most part, you know, really before the pandemic, invest in some of these more research-based technologies that aren't quite production ready in our space. So for computer vision, you're talking about ways to visualize spaces before like, you know, basically rendering before and afters without doing any manual work. So you're able to help people visualize what their space might look like if it were painted in a Tuscan style or, or something like that. And, you know, it's very much in the research phase. I, I'm, I follow very closely the computer vision research. There's actually a huge uh, conference called CVPR that starts next week. So I attend Exciting. that every year. 
it, well, and uh, this year it's going to be fully virtual, but that's where a ton of researchers and academics in from the industry present papers uh, on the latest and greatest techniques, computer vision and pattern recognition. It's a lot of fields, not just, you know, the computer vision, but it's much more than that. But you have all the big hitters, NVIDIA, Intel, Google, Facebook present there, as well as, you know, major academics from all the big universities. I mean, that kind of sounds like a personal hobby. You spend some time thinking about it, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I think <laughs> it, de- it definitely is a personal hobby. It's a, I'd say it's a personal passion, and I've been able to navigate the corporate world to incorporate it into my business life. And that, that makes a lot of sense. It's one of those things that, you know, Kyle and I kind of do sometimes trying to find if you can incorporate a personal interest into like a potential business case, all of a sudden it comes, seems a lot more productive to be pursuing that. And I think you've clearly identified some potential use cases for computer vision in the space you're working in since you literally work in spaces. I think we're going to transition now into what we refer to as the bonus round, kind of some rapid fire questions. Uh, and this is the first one we have on here. So this is a technical question. If you are starting over as the CTO building an MVP for Pinkson, what would be some of the tools you'd use for your stack for building a web app of similar purpose? So, okay. So my answer is I would tell someone to use whatever technology they know the best. Right okay. now, for me, I learned Node and the mean stack and then React for Pinkson because it was new and I wanted to. And so now I'm really good at it. So if I was starting over, I would choose those technologies again. But if I was actually starting over seven years ago, I probably would have done Java because that's what I knew best. That's what I learned in school. You know, I started painting as a more or less a side project as a hobby, trying to like throw something together. I did not think it was going to be a huge business. And that's one sort of mistake that I made. And you find, you know, using the latest and greatest you know, I chose good technologies that were long lasting, but not all of them were, right? Had I chosen something that was sort of more production ready, more battle tested, some things would have been easier for me along, along the way. But what it really comes down to is you got to move so fast that whatever you know is what you should use. Right? If you're mm-hmm. awesome at Ruby, use Ruby. If you're awesome at Python, use Python. Um, there's frameworks for everything. You can pretty much do whatever in whatever language you know. And I wouldn't really worry about like what the perfect language is for your use case. I would say, worry about how are you going to be able to build something of value as quickly as possible? Okay. That's a really cool answer. I I like that a lot. I think that's honestly a better answer than just saying, you know, use the mean stack, use the Mern stack, use Python Django. So I think that's, that's good to follow up though. Someone's pretty new and pretty green to programming in general. What would be a good stack to start out learning with? So the, latest and greatest stack apis and markup so basically you have have some javascript you have really third-party apis maybe your own apis uh, and then static markup templates that you're serving via a content delivery network or via like s3 from aws so the jamstack is i've heard a lot about lately and i think it really builds off serverless which is the other thing i was going to mention if you know nothing I've been extremely impressed with AWS Lambdas, which are their serverless functions, at how blazingly fast they are. I did not think they would be capable of what they're capable of. We actually have a serverless function that we use to power our autocomplete 
on our website, which means as you type, it's doing some validation and fetching a list of autocomplete results, which I did not think was going to be performant, and it is. So if you're brand new, I would look at the Jamstack. You know, JavaScript is great. I like it a lot. You can look at TypeScript, which is an evolution of JavaScript. But yeah, the Jamstack and serverless. Well, you're talking directly to me because I have no idea what y'all are talking about right now. <laughs> so next question, what are some of your goals moving forward as a CTO with PaintZen, with life? Like what, what's up for you in the next couple of years? For me, so in the next couple of years, uh, for me, it's about uh, tackling uh, new problems. So from a technology standpoint, it's really about scale. PaintZen as it stands and, and as the industry stands from like a comparison to say Facebook or Google, Painton doesn't need to scale, right? A couple servers is all we need. Uh, you have some redundancy. You're great. You're good to go. You know, working on different types of problems that really tackle scale, whether that's, you know, in PPG or elsewhere uh, is really intriguing to me and what interests me. And the other aspect is refining my experience with management. You know, you often find that CTOs of startups, don't make it to the later rounds. I found a lot of value in management and uh, building other people up, in mentoring, in career progression, and really you know, hiring brilliant people that can do things better than I could do them. Uh, and I think that's extremely rewarding. It's not for everybody, but I really liked it and really continuing to scale my career and my team. So you know, right now, prior to the pandemic, we had about 30 people. And really just looking to grow, you know, the number of people I manage, the different ways that organizations function and really how to optimize an organization. You know, I approach management like an engineer, sometimes a little too scientific with spreadsheets and like different charts and formulas, but really trying to optimize a team. And that's not to say to demean people as cogs in a machine or as replaceable units. It actually means the opposite, getting to know someone on an individual basis, knowing what motivates them. Why do they come to work? Why do they stay late some nights? Why don't they stay late other nights? You know, really getting into people's mental health and their experiences and making sure that it's a positive one are all things that, you know, I'm passionate about from the management aspect and, and really continuing to explore those. So you're kind of shifting from a self-centered attitude to more of an other-centered attitude. Exactly. Or at least that's what you, what you want to happen. Not that the self-centered thing was bad. I mean, you know, it got you to where you're at, but you're saying that you think it's time to begin investing in others. And I think yeah. that's really respectable. You know, I've done it. I'd say pre-acquisition, we were about a tech team of about eight people right before the acquisition. And I was not a good manager. I was ignoring people. Not ignoring them, but like I wasn't having set one-on-ones. I wasn't pairing with them. I wasn't talking to them about their career every month. But post-acquisition, I really focused on the management aspect. And I did not think I would enjoy it as much as I do. That's great. So what advice would you give technical students or recent graduates entering into the startup world? And what advice would you give to non-technical students? The easiest one is for non-technical students. Don't take advantage of the technical students. I see that way too often where... A non-technical person will basically use and abuse the technical person and not value them as a human uh, and not value them as what they're contributing. 
you might have a great idea, but without someone to execute that, it's worthless. So make sure you value your technical partners. For technical students or recent grads, the startup world is harsh. It is not for everybody. You know, when you're a recent grad is a great time. You don't have a lot of worries. You don't have, or you most likely don't have, you know, a family or children to worry about. And you have an opportunity to live, live on less and really exchange equity for salary. But be careful because I'm extremely lucky that I was able to sell a company, but most people don't. And you're going to join a startup that's going to give you options and, and also don't work there because they're trying to mislead you. But go in with eyes wide open that you still need to make money, that you still need to make a decent salary, right? It can be 80% of what you expected. That's fine. But don't overvalue stock because the odds of it being worth millions are so slim. You know, we had, we had employees, PaintSend, you know, we had a, a good exit. I'd say not an outstanding exit. And most of our employees made, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, which is great. And it changed some of their lives for sure. We had customer service reps that were with us since the beginning that made, you know, over a hundred grand. And that's got to feel good. Yeah. That, that changes their lives. That's not, you know, something that someone answers who answers the phone is going to expect in their life. But at the same time, you know, that that's rare. My advice is don't bank on that. Right. Uh, That's got to feel good from, from your end too, because like you're saying, you know, don't, don't bet on it. Don't, don't expect it. And I don't think the people in your company did, but you were able to, to make it happen. You know, like at one point you were the guy on the other, at the other side of the table being like, well, it could be worth money one day. And then it, it worked out for you. So that's, that's really amazing. It is amazing. I'm super lucky. I'm super grateful. But I, I come back to advice my dad would say as I was going through all this. At every stage, you know, I would tell him like, oh, you know, my shares are worth $200,000 now. And he's like, mm-hmm. okay, but are they really worth that? I'm like, no, I mean, on paper, it's not really worth that. And he would be like, well, at least it's a good experience. And mm-hmm. I really think that that's actually a good fallback, right? Don't grind away for the hopes of becoming rich with something you're not happy with. Grind away with something that you enjoy, something that you're learning from, something that's making you a better programmer, a better entrepreneur, a better whatever. If you're learning a life skill out of the startup experience, that's great, right? Mm-hmm. But go in you know, with eyes wide open that that might be all you get out of it. And that's okay. I think doing anything just for the money is, leads you down a bad path. And I think that your, your dad was really smart there. That sounds like like a dad. <laughs> One last question here before we let you go. What book or books have been most impactful for you in your personal life, your career, whatever it may be, your artistry? So a couple of books. Zero to One by Peter mm-hmm. Thiel was a big one. Another one is The First 90 Days. So if you're ever starting a new job, you should read First 90 Days. It's about what you should do in your first 90 days at a new job. And then another really big one, is radical candor. And just in terms of management style, it was super impactful. A lot of stuff that you know in your heart, but when you read it on the page, you're like, oh, that makes way more sense now. And really, so many good lessons in that book on how to be a good manager um, and how to listen to people and how to speak clearly and transparently with them. So those are the three that had had a big impact recently. 
on my life for sure. That's a great answer. And we'll have to uh, include those in the notes here. I want to thank you for coming on with us. This was very valuable for Kyle and I, and I think will be for a lot of our listeners. You gave us a lot of dynamics, both, you know, we went to the weeds a little bit, a couple of times with some of the technical problems you're solving. I was really interested in that phone number tracking thing. I was trying to think through that myself. And then also some of the more interpersonal dynamics and the mindset along the way of the beliefs you have at each of the inflection points in the company and your decision-making process. So I, I really enjoy this conversation. got a lot of value from it and really appreciate you doing this with us. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to that interview with James Goldman. It was, it was really great to hear the story of Painzen and how he went from, you know, finding that, that job on Craigslist all the way through to getting acquired and, and what that was like, really, what that felt like to fulfill kind of the dream of, of an entrepreneur, which is to have a successful exit. And then for him to put it into perspective of, of what it was really like, which is a lot different than what I thought, you know, so that was interesting. Yeah, I agree, Kyle. And I think he also did a really good job of kind of explaining the work that went into it and the uncertainty throughout that whole process, how from the back, it looks so deterministic about, you know, we did this and that and the other thing. But as the acquisition was being negotiated, he had to work so hard every day as CTO as if things weren't going to pan out. And I thought that was super interesting to consider how he had to still work. Like really the glory and the, the win only came when things hit the bank account, all checks were signed, like done and done and done. But up until that point, it was still risky. And that's not something I'd really realized is such a certain part of the process. So I definitely learned that from having this episode with him. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. If you want to support us and encourage us to make more episodes just like this, there's a few ways you can help us. The main way is just by recommending the show to a friend. If you know someone who's interested in entrepreneurship and real estate and technology or any of the other topics that we consistently cover, send them an episode. Say, start listening to this podcast and I think you might like it. Otherwise, you can give us a rating or review on iTunes saying what you think about the show. And if you just want to keep up with new episodes or reach out to us directly, you can join our Discord by direct messaging us for a link on any major social media platform. And we'll get you plugged into our little discussion community where we talk about some of this stuff offline, whether that's entrepreneurship, real estate, reading, habits, or any other topics. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you in about a week with the next episode.